Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp for the New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. I'm here today with Tora Peterson. He is professor of international and American diplomatic history at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Welcome, Professor Peterson. Thank you very much. I, we, what we usually do on the show is... Uh, Talk a little bit about the cover. You have an interesting illustration sketch on the cover. Can you elaborate on that for uh, for our listeners? This is from the little fingernail ledger that was captured uh, from the Giants in January 1879. And it's named after the owner, little fingernail. And he had it on his body. Uh, and you see uh, to the right, the bullet pierced right through it. So uh, and also the Giants were confi- confined to barracks at Fort Robinson this fall, and in January they broke out because they didn't want to go to back to south, and uh, and uh, several of the Giants in confinement uh, contributed to the Giant Ledger book or Little Finger Ledger book, and I think it's uh, an important window into Giant history, and I'm not. That's a, a great of an expert to read it, but uh, somebody who is saying that the uh, Cheyenne culture is dead now, it's totally wrong because to me it seems to be very vibrant. So uh, the focus of your book, the title is The Military Conquest of the Prairie, which involves the Cheyenne, uh, Native American Native American Resistance, Evasion, and Survival, 1865 to 1890. How did you approach uh, United States, quoting you, genocide, and Native American warfare on the prairie. You know, this has been a project of mine, long way coming. Even when I, I have a, a PhD in American history from the University of Minnesota, and uh, while studying there, I took a lot of classes in Native American history because they had a Native American studies program. And I, since 1996, I traveled each summer on the prairie, uh, visiting reservations, museums, and battlefields. And uh, a few years ago, uh, I don't, I can't recall which, but uh, there was a biography coming out on Custer, on Custer. And reading it, I thought I knew more about the author on this of this than the author. And and uh, I just tried to write out what I what I knew, or uh, had I had collected, you know, materials for many many years. And, and suddenly, dawned on me when going through the material, the, the you can have a different approach try to look at this from the Native American side. So that's what I've tried to do. Can you elucidate uh, or elaborate on the introductory statement that, quote, a central argument in this book is that the Native Americans were superior fighters over the military or any white man in a confrontation? Well, I should probably have qualified it, but I, <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be on your show. <laughs> uh, the point is uh, when the Indians, the Native Americans choose to fight, they usually won. And uh, it's quite amazing because they were usually inferior in numbers and, and armaments. But uh, 
Uh, I can't think of uh, any one-on-one confrontation where there's a clear uh, army victory. You know, because I, I don't uh, count uh, uh, attacking sleeping villages as, uh, you know, a fair fight. Pretty prominent uh military figures from United States uh, history figure largely into your book. One in particular is uh, General William Tecumseh Sherman. In 1866, uh, you argue that he did not need to order the killing of women and children when uh, the army attacked and slaughtered a Sioux village at dawn. How did he advocate wholesale extermination. Can you elaborate on that? Well, there are not numerous quotes, you know, but, uh, most important, for instance, after the Fatman fight in December 1866, when it says, um, we have to act with vindictive earnestness, earnestness against the Sioux to uh, exterminate men, women, children, you know, everybody. Uh, and also... Um, when he condoned the army practice of attacking sleeping villages, usually two-thirds of the victims were women and children. So he didn't have to say anything about it, but just condoning it and promoting it, he, uh, he uh, put himself in a position that most of the uh, people killed were non-combatants. Can you also touch on... Uh... A scholarly debate that appears in your that's related to this, a scholarly debate in your book over the extermination of the buffalo. Yes, um, basically, the, the, most of the uh, debate has been that uh, when uh, getting uh, buffalo skins hides uh, for the tanning uh, or for for uh, industrial work in 1871 in New York, it opened the market, and hence the the wholesale hunting and slaughter of buffalo. And uh, some Native, Amer- um, Native American historians or uh, historians of the environment says, well, the Native Americans have a huge part in this because they uh, slaughtered uh, or killed buffaloes for uh, tipis, for food, and for the market. But there are two problems with that. First of all, it's, it's, uh, they probably exaggerate the numbers of Native Americans in the South. And uh, before the slaughter started in 1872, there were about estimated 7 million buffaloes in the sun, on the southern plains. Um, so uh, that, that, that's one of it. And, and the other one is that uh, this, uh, historians say that the, the Indians slaughtered basically cows and hindered reproduction. But I mean, uh, with 7 million uh, buffaloes and perhaps up to 3.5 million calves produced annually, you know, my estimate is that uh, the Native Americans c- could not uh, kill more than about 200,000 buffaloes. So there were plenty left for wolf predation and uh, reproduction. So it's the uh, white hide hunters that kill the buffalo. And hence, I think the debate is um, uh, rather moot, to put it mildly. So the following is a, a two-part question. Uh, first, can you explain how power operated in Plains Native communities, how it was devolved to the warriors and their societies, uh, the most famous of which was the, uh, the they were the uh, Cheyenne dog soldiers. And then second, uh, you note that this, that this particular example where they were very conscious of their power and effectively blocked much of the westward moving settlement of Kansas for almost a decade. So, A, how, how did power operate within Plains Native communities? And in particular, B, the, uh, the, the Cheyenne. And how, how, can you touch on a little bit how they blocked moving settlement of the, the settlement of Kansas? 
Okay, I'll I'll try. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, these are, in my view, fairly highly organized societies. In usual times, uh, peace chiefs run the tribe, you know, determining uh, uh, where to camp, where to move, uh, to go to war, and things like that. But in times of crisis, the young men in the tribes, you know, have to protect and defend the tribe, and hun- and hence power devolved in their direction because they would uh, be able to decide to go to war, to make peace or fight or not to fight. The other thing is when you look at, uh, when you look at, uh, at uh, uh, Kansas, uh, my argument is that uh, the dog soldiers were very effective, effective in blocking uh, uh, westward migration for almost a decade in, in Western Kansas. For our listeners, can you trace the causes of the 1874-1875 Red River War and explain why the infamous Battle of Palo Duro Canyon, which I'd like you to, to elaborate on, was little more than a skirmish with few, if any, immediate consequences? Yes, uh, because uh, first of all, the war itself, my argument is that uh, the federal government was tired of having Native Americans not submitting to white authorities and going to the reservation. And also, uh, you know, I argue elsewhere in the book that the tribes after 1865-69 were essentially divided in three parts. One part stayed on the reservation the whole year. One part stayed outside in the summer. And the third never came into the reservation. And in the south, we talk about basically the quality Comanches. And most of the Southern Giants and probably 50 to 60 Kiowa warriors, warriors who refused to submit. And this is also tied into the expansion of the buffalo hunting. They went south, the buffalo hunters went south of the Arkansas, Arkansas River in 1874. And we have this infamous battle fight at Adobe Walls, you know, and that was the excuse the army was waiting for because they didn't want to have the tribes to put it mildly, running around without supervision. Um, and most historians say that there were between two and 400 teepees at Palo Dover Canyon in 18, September 1874. And Mackenzie scored, you know, a tremendous victory. I'm not sure about that. I visited the Palo Dover Canyon several times. I even rented a horse and I'd never been on a horse before. Uh, but it seems to me it's going to be... <laughs> I was scared out of my wits. Um, it seems to me it's going to be difficult to place up to 400 um, tipis there and also uh, 2,000 horses. And also, if you look at uh, the, the older uh, sources like George Bird, Grinnell and stuff like that, it's clear that um, uh, they saw Mackenzie on top of the canyon and when they saw him coming, they just packed up and left. So also when you look at the number of casualties, I think uh, army reports one killed or one wounded. Mackenzie got a, an arrow in his tie, or and and uh, there were I think three Indians reported killed. So it's a skirmish, if anything. And uh, everybody says, you know, you can, it's strange to me because when I visited the Polydor Canyon the first time, you know, it's if you've been there, it's totally flat. And I was looking at, where is the canyon? It's like a, a line made by pencil, we see it first, and then it opens up, you know. But if the Indians are unhorsed, if Mackenzie had captured an entire horse herd, there wouldn't be any problem to uh, to catch pedestrians on top of the canyon afterwards. 
but strangely, he doesn't make any attempt to do so. So, um, first of all, uh, the Indians would not have lost um, their horses, all of them. And secondly, um, there weren't that many. And thirdly, allegedly, the Quadi Comanches, Quana Parker, was supposed to be at the Palo Duro Canyon, Palo Duro Canyon, but it was not. They were not, the Quadi Comanches were not there. And like I said, the Chines just packed up and left before uh, Mackenzie came down into the canyon. Moving on uh, to uh, the Sioux hunting bands component, <clears throat> what indication was there that the Sioux hunting bands were united in their purpose of remaining free long before the Great Sioux War started? That's the first part. And then can you also focus on Sitting Bull, who uh, provided you know, political and re- religious cohesion in their endeavor? Uh, first of all, uh, after the 1868 treaty, when the Sioux forced the closure of the Bozeman Road and uh, burned down three fortresses, one of the few wars that the federal government uh, lost, uh, quite a few of the Native Americans went to the reservations. One, one of the more famous is, of course, Red Cloud, with a large part of the Oglala Sioux. But quite a few Sioux from many tribes decided they didn't want to have to do anything with the government. Like, like I mentioned earlier, you know, about a third of them refused to have anything to do mm. with the government, signed treaties and be confined to a reservation. And they... Uh, went and uh, supported Sitting Bull, who was a strong spokesman for uh, non-reservation Indians. And also, Sitting Bull's authority was derived not just because of his skill as a warrior, but because he was a well-known medicine man. You also argue that, unable to defeat the Oglala Sioux hunting bands in the field, the federal government and the army tried diplomacy instead, using the agency the agency Indians as intermediaries. Can you elucidate the uh, goals and also, of course, identities of these agency Indians? Yes, yeah, fairly uh, easy because um, uh, are you familiar with George Hyde and all his books? Yes. I thought he wrote a rather f- fabulous one on uh, Spotted Tail Folks, the Brul Sioux, and one of the things that I gleaned from that book was that um, the Spotted Dale was supposed to be an agency Indian, but that's really in quotation marks because he used his connection to white people and several times cut loose from white authorities. So if he could go out, and he went out, could go out and induce a crazy horse and perhaps sitting bull to come into the reservation, he would, of course, carry favors with white authorities. Besides, I think he left with uh, 30 warriors or maybe even more. So he took the chance or possibility to go out looking for Crazy Horse as a way of cutting loose from white authorities. And for leadership of the shoe, he was in intense competition with, um, with Red Cloud. And he also went out. They tried to uh, further their own political position and also gain favor with white authorities. What was the fate? This is kind of a follow-up uh, question. What was the, the fate of Sitting Bull? Uh, you mentioned in your book that um, Sitting Bull, um, even on the reservation, was a strong voice for independence. He was possibly murdered. Can you uh, elaborate? He was murdered. Yes. Okay. He was. Um, uh, he he went to Canada, as you may know, 
And he said, yeah, I would stay there because he asked the Canadian authorities for a reservation. And there's a lot of international uh, interesting diplomacy about this. So that's something I might be looking into later because I, I went to the public records office in London and I find quite a lot of stuff from the British side on Sitting Bull's sojourn in Canada. So he requested a reservation from the British authorities or Canadian authorities, but they turned it down because of pressure from the United States. And uh, sometimes in 1879, 1880, uh, Canadian buffalo is extinct, or at least it doesn't return north of the border. So Sitting Bull says, I don't want to come back to a reservation as long as there's a mouse to be eaten on the prairie. But in 1881, he was forced to surrender because there was simply nothing to eat. So from 1881 to 1890, he was a strong spokesperson for the Sioux, trying to avoid further loss of land and maintenance of culture. With the ghost dance in 1890, the agent feared that Sitting Bull might lead more opposition. So he sent Indian police to arrest him. And while I wouldn't say resisting arrest, but not being overly enthusiastic to and uh, go with Indian police. Uh, Red Tomac kill, killed him and his son in 1890. So you conclude that uh, in the end section of your book that uh, with the surrender of Sitting Bull, the War of the Prairie came came to a close. Native American military resistance was no longer possible nor an option afterward. Why was it no longer possible nor an option afterward? So that's the first part of the question. Second part of the question is, uh, when, but when fighting, the hunting bands had made the unpardonable sin of humiliating all arms of the federal government. For this, they had to pay. So the first part of the question is, why, you know, how, did, how, how was military resistance no longer an option? And then what, what did this U.S. revenge that was to be thorough entail? Okay. That's a large question. First of all, as part of coming into the archive, I was about to say to the archives, so probably a little later, uh, coming into the reservations, part of the deal was to give up their arms and ammunition. So they didn't, simply didn't have any means to uh, resist. Furthermore, the buffalo in the north were extinct, extinct in 1883. So there was neither resources to stay out. So that takes care of that. Also, uh, you, the longer you go, you know, there's going to be more white settlements, more uh, railroads. So it's going to be difficult to, uh, in any case, uh, maintain an independent existence. What we see uh, after 1887 with the Dawes Act, when uh, the reservations were uh, divided up, is that uh, and now I speak of all Native Americans, two-thirds of the Native American land base was lost between 1887 and 1934. And on reservations, um, uh, the reservations were often inadequate. People starved. Uh, kids were kidnapped to put in boarding schools. where They often contracted uh, tuberculosis, trachoma, other diseases. And there was no medical help on the reservation. So uh, the American Native American population reaches low point total in the United States of around 1900, I think, because of the conditions offered on the reservations. And I see that uh, part of it is not just uh, neglect, but it's, in my view, 
my interpretation, it's revenge for opposing the American authorities. Were boarding schools, you mentioned already the Dawes Act and the allotment, were boarding schools and the kidnapping of Native American children, which uh, if possible uh, you can touch on, was that part of this revenge? You know, when you say revenge in that sense, you know, uh, when I step back, okay, when I step back and see at the total picture, you see that uh, conditions for Native Americans deteriorate in all respects, in terms of land base, in terms of health, in terms of uh, longevity, uh, everything, right? Number of diseases. So uh, the slogan from the for, for the white uh, government was that uh, we have to destroy the, um, the tribes to save the ind- individual Indian. So it's a rather tough attack on Native American culture. And that's why Native American kids were kidnapped and put in boarding schools where they took uh, shaved off their, their um, hair, you know, and put them on in white clothes and uh, basically industrial schools. And they had very, very poor diet and and uh, very poor accommodations. And it was so if one, one child contracted tuberculosis, most of them would do so because of the living conditions. So uh, when uh, Native Americans refused to give up their children, the army was sent in to to grab them. The very last uh, section of your book, you argue federal Indian policy was designed in its practical implications, despite all the rhetorical flourish to the contrary, to bring Native Americans to extinction. Around the turn of the 19th century, there was much talk of the vanishing Indian as the Native American population was at, a, was at its low ebb in 1900 with about 180,000 peoples. Destruction of the Native American population was, of course, the real aim of the policy, which we di- when we disregard the rhetoric and look at the results of the Dawzak and other initiatives, the policies to bring about their extinction seemed to succeed brilliantly, but fortunately, in the end, they failed. It is a testament to the resilience and courage of Native Americans that not only did they survive, but were also able to maintain much of their culture and land base under these varying trying circumstances. So you ultimately argue that argue that uh, these Native peoples survived and persisted. Okay, um, what are ex- examples uh, that you can provide uh, of this survival and the persistence, especially among the Sioux and the, the Cheyenne? Yeah, the China is a really interesting case, you know, because uh, the, particularly the Northern Giants. Um, I already mentioned uh, the little finger named Ledger. Uh, and this was caused by Northern Giants that were forcibly moved south and refused to stay in south. You probably know the history, the Cheyenne exodus, right? And then most reservations were broken up and Native Americans lost much, 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 much of the land base, actually, I think because the Giants were such a resilient and hard-fighting people, the president uh, organized a reservation for them in 1884 and 1885, going directly against the trend, the Northern Giant Reservation, which still exists today. So when most Indians lost the land base, the Giants actually got more land. And I think that's a testament to their fighting abilities, both politically and militarily. It's very compelling. Um, So uh, for our listeners, uh, I always have this question. um, What can we expect from you next? Um, Is there any books uh, that you are working working on that you can disclose at this time? Any projects or any vacations that you plan on taking? You know, I organized our PhD seminar and invited them. 
publishers. And uh, the guy who's running Hearst publishes in the United States and Oxford University Press in in the United uh, Hearst publishes in England and Oxford University Press in um, United States. He heard about my project and he was wildly enthusiastic because I mentioned I'd like to write a more popular book on Native Americans and um, not just, you know, the, the current book you have in your hand is it's much like an argument, right? It's uh, like to fill out the stuff because uh, there's the famous example of a sitting bull is evolving to the great spirit before the battle of uh, Little Bighorn. And they take uh, 50 pieces of skin of each of his arms, you know, he's dancing all night and suddenly have a vision that um, soldiers are falling into the camp. I don't say anything about that. I just say he provides uh, ideological and religious coherence to the tribes. So I, I like to expand more, you know, and also uh, since this has uh, given me a framework, I like, for instance, to go to um, uh, where uh, the Fetterman fight took place because I can't say that 2,000 Indians were hiding there to attack the soldiers, but I've been there several times that I can't imagine that 2,000 uh, Indians can hide anywhere there. So I'd like to just uh, go over some of the battlefields and see if uh, the terrain fits uh, the, the accounts. So I'm uh, looking at um, publishing a book, a book on that. So a uh, biography of Sitting Bull and then... Um... No, a more extended book on the, uh, Native American warfare, 1865 to 90 on the prairie. And uh, what I try to do, you know, in the, this book is look at this from Native American perspective. That's why I think ledger art is an interesting source. I really appreciate you being on the show today, uh, Professor. Thank you. So for all our listeners, this is uh, Ryan Tripp for the New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. We'll hope you listen next time. Thank you.